So Christian, when do you think you first started using social media? And do you remember the first social media app that you used? I feel like I might already know the answer to this. I like that you're asking if I remember because I'm so old. You're like, I bet your memory is foggy. And you're right. It definitely it is if that was implied. But Well, I'm not as old as you, but my memory is garbage. So True. you never know. You do have the memory <laughs> of someone twice your age. We've always yeah. said you're an old soul. <laughs> yeah, I actually do remember signing up for Facebook. I think I want to say it was 2003. I was at IU, so I was still an undergrad. And I think at the time... Facebook was called thefacebook.com, and it had only rolled out to a few universities outside Harvard, and Indiana was one of the first few. I graduated high school in 2000, so in 2003 or four, whenever I started using it, I think it was four. Anyway, it was really just like a way to see the people we graduated. I mean, it's only been like four years, but like that was why we all signed up for it, it was like to see all the people from high school. So yeah, that was probably the first time. And then I remember meeting my wife a couple years later, and she was like on MySpace. And that was when I sort of became more aware of MySpace. So really, at the time, those are the two main things. I don't know that I used it beyond like, just creating a profile and then seeing who else was on there. But it wasn't what it, what it is today. At that time, it was like really, really early on. So I feel like I kind of like let it sit for a few years before like, starting my career in 07 and then connecting with other people on there. It's funny that you say that because I feel like everybody my age was on MySpace first because Facebook was still for college kids. Oh, yeah. And it came out like when we were in middle school was when we all got on it. I can't remember like, and I know what we're talking about in this episode, I can't remember what someone told me it did. I'm guessing someone was just like, hey, check this out. Everybody's on it. You can see them. And I think that's hard to convey today because you take it for granted that you can pretty much look up on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and on one or all of those in in LinkedIn, you're going to find evidence of somebody. But back then, like once you graduated and moved away, like you didn't have any easy way to do it except for like a high school reunion. So I, I think that really was like the thing. It wasn't like a community. It was just like, hey, go find people and Adam as friends and poke them for whatever reason. Yeah, that was weird. So when when do we think like the term social media was coined? When did it really become a concept beyond, okay, it's like a reunion online? I mean, I sh- I'm sure we could just like look this up on the internet and come up with a an accurate answer. But we can also just make it up too, as we talk and say, it was probably a few years after that, because that stage when I was using it, it was still like getting adoption. So it hadn't been widespread. But Twitter... I also remember the first time I used Twitter, which was 2008, which is still pretty early on by today's standards. At the time, I felt late, which is kind of funny to think about. But I only started using Twitter because me and a friend were trying to create some startup that used pictograms to to talk, <laughs> and which now basically is emojis. So like that kind of happened. But we we were building this app that did that. And to learn how this worked, I just got on Twitter and then I just started using Twitter. And I think like in 2009, that's when I had like problems with Twitter. I was like using it all the time. By the way, I still remember getting on Twitter and telling my wife, oh my gosh, you can follow famous people are on here. I literally remember saying this and I started following Tony Hawk. I am not a skateboarder, but I played Tony Hawk's pro skater on PlayStation since the 90s. And I was like, He's just like talking on here and he's like posting pictures. I was like 
completely floored by this concept. And he's big on Twitter today, too. Yeah, he stayed with it. So what is that, 12 years? It's wild. So that was what I remember the Twitter part was really just I started on research, but then I was like amazed that you could you could like see what other people were saying. And then I had real problems with it. Like I had to like have cold turkey weeks where I like didn't check it for a week. So that I think kind of leads towards what this episode is about. But yeah, that, I do remember that as well. But I feel like your question of like social media must have been around that time when there's a few different approaches to it where it was like a category now. Right. There were different types of platforms that made up the category. But yeah, like you said, I asked the question because I think we can both agree that social media has changed a lot over the last, I guess, two decades and especially over the last decade. So today we have much more than MySpace and Facebook to talk about Twitter, et cetera. Nike, for example, just bought a company to sell digital shoes in the metaverse. So clearly something's, something's changing today. So many buzzwords in this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we thought our lives revolved around social media before, it's looking like there are definitely forces now that are pulling our lives more into social media than just kind of around it. So we have to remember that every action comes with an equal and opposite reaction. So with this force that's pulling us in, we're also seeing a rise of what we're coining or calling anti-social media products. And that's what this episode is about. Yeah, and I'm really excited because I've ranted on this a lot. And we finally, we've talked about this and doing an episode on this, but I remember saying like, Let's wait until we have something that's just not me ranting about how much I despise something. And so we finally have that, but there will be a, a small bit of ranting, which will be fun, but it'll be organized. So there's really three things that I think are helpful to recognize when you think about anti-social media and how we're going to talk about it today. First off, if it's not obvious, I'm one of these people, but a lot of people are dissatisfied with the state of social media. And then that satisfaction has led to people embracing what we're calling anti-social media. So this is this, this sort of like new movement that we'll explain in a minute. And then there are now products that are kind of highlighting this new movement, which is really what we're hoping to tee up with, with this episode series. So that's really what, what we're going to go after is explaining what anti-social media is and then some of the new trends that are emerging there. But before we get into that, this is the part where I'm like really excited to kick off, which is the whole question of, why are we dissatisfied with social media? And I have personal reasons, but I'll try to sort of keep them at a level that I think you know other people may may sort of resonate with. But I think one thing that I think is important to know is that from my perspective, a lot of these social media apps today are suffering from a product of a lack of intention in the very beginning. So it's important to know that like Facebook started as this sort of hot or not clone that was called FaceMash, which basically just looked at Harvard students' faces and you voted on whether they were hot or not. You know, pretty basic, typical like college kid thing. And I'm not blaming the problems they have today on that, but I think that's important to know why things I think have gotten out of control is because it didn't have the focus that it's tried to back its way into today. And I was thinking of this metaphor for Facebook which is I remember the first time we ever drove down from Indiana to Florida and my mom, who's a huge fan of plants, was pointing out all the kudzu that had taken over a lot of these forests. And the, the kudzu plant's not native here. It was actually brought for the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. And so all these people really liked it in the South because they started using it as a shade creator on their front porches. 
And so over time, they didn't quite realize how easy it was for this to just spread everywhere. And as the kudzu spread, it strangled and suffocated a lot of the other native plants that were there. And so when you look, when you drive around a lot of parts of the United States today, you see this invasive species that's actually suffocated out, you know, quite a bit of diversity in the plant life. So anyway, I think that's the metaphor I use for social media and how it's evolved. A lot of it didn't have a strong intention or like understanding of the power that it would wield. And so as it's been left unchecked, the product's kind of outgrown itself to a point where it's almost unmanageable. And so now you can't really get rid of the kudzu and you can't really fully get rid of Facebook. So what I feel like we're all dissatisfied in is that this whole thing has taken over, but we don't really love what it's become. So I think that's a really great metaphor. And one thing we've been thinking a lot about is, was there ever a point in the history of social media where we should have had some hope or where we did have some hope? Did it ever have promise or was it always doomed to fail? So it's kind of like that point in your story where people were using the kudzu as shade because at that point in time, it was doing something great. It was serving, it hadn't blown up yet. It hadn't become invasive. It was just solving a problem or making their lives better. And I think there might have been a a short window of that with social media. I remember being really excited when Instagram first came out because I remember that's the point when I started to get a little bit frustrated with Facebook and people just dumping hundreds of photos at once. And there's never any way anyone would go through everybody else's 200 photo album unless, you know, they were a stalker or their mom or, you know, both. So... I remember being excited when Instagram came out because I was like, oh, this is great. It's going to be so much more curated, one photo at a time, not a lot of noise. Everybody's just going to post their best stuff. And now, obviously, Instagram's become overrun with ads, and it's not what it was intended to be. I feel like you're hitting on something that I know this is a product podcast, but the business model, I think, is one of the sort of toxic maybe, I don't know, engines that drives these, which is ads. Because I I agree with you. I think there's a point that Facebook had promise. I I think, you know, several years ago when they started touting its ability to like drive communities and, and, you know, Twitter talking about the Arab Spring and all that, I actually believe in what they were trying to do. That made me, gosh, that was years ago at this point. And there's been so many things that have not improved since and that have only gotten worse. And part of that is because it's an ad-driven business model. So if you're driving ads, the ad model is all about eyeballs and attention. So if that's the whole re- way you make money, everything you build is geared towards that. So even if Facebook believes that they want to build community, it's very counter to how they actually make money and survive, which is to just find the quickest hacks, the bio hacks to get eyeballs on things And that is like the bane of humanity. So they have this thing, which is like, we're very social creatures and we're promising to encourage the social side of humanity, except that all the ways we encourage adoption are like the reptilian side of our brain. And that's the sort of juxtaposition that plagues Facebook today, in my opinion, which is like, you don't, your very existence is predicated on something that is completely counter to what you're trying to do. I feel like, a sign that it's not good is when you have to sit with your kids, which I have had to do to explain how or when they're even allowed to use social media. And I was thinking about this before the show that that alone is not bad. I mean, you have to teach people how to drive cars and you get a driver's test and you have a license. And so to some degree, what my wife and I wrote up for our kids about how to use social media was similar, except that I think it's more like smoking. And it's like, at some point, 
you shouldn't smoke. And so now their kids is like, this is so bad and toxic that you shouldn't do it. But I don't think it has to be that way. I think that we could design it in a way that encourages these great things, but it's built and founded on something different. I would love to have a conversation about social media that is much more like driving a car, safety guidelines, but there's immense value than I am now, which is more like smoking. It will kill you and like make your life worse and cause addictions. Yeah, like driving a car is not an addiction, but smoking is and, and social media has become one. And it's because of what you said, all the inherent product functionality that they've built into it to hit these business goals, to to pursue this business model that is, I mean, it's built to make money. It's not built to be a social platform anymore. And in the last year alone, we saw a lot of news that has been bringing up some concerning information. I don't think anybody was surprised. <laughs> Obviously, social media has been doing a lot of harm to a lot of different groups of people in the last year, last couple of years. We had the former Facebook product manager blow the whistle on a horde of research that showed Facebook and Instagram are harmful for teens and especially teenage girls. And I think, like you said, where you're talking about sitting down with your kids, it's almost like, it, from, I guess, from a product marketing and brand perspective, we think these companies should have a responsibility to put out some sort of messaging into the world or at least put out some guidelines or maybe not even build this kind of functionality into their platforms in the first place. But once they do, once they shirk that responsibility, you have a responsibility as a parent to your kids to sit down with them and say, okay, look, here is what you need to be focused on. Here's what you need to be careful of. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm like, I don't know what I would do if I was Facebook because you're talking about product marketing and brand. And I was going to ask, like, what do you think about even rebranding to meta? The guess is tied to the metaverse. But I think a lot of criticism is like you're rebranding to try to get away from your problems. But I don't know what else you do. Sometimes that works. But with Facebook, it's I mean, it's so overgrown. It's so invasive at this point that the rebrand was more of an eye roll than a change in perception because everybody already knows Facebook. Everybody knows what they've been doing, what they're capable of. And there's it's not like they're going to turn that off overnight. And so what's a rebrand going to do? I mean, I don't know all the specifics of what Twitter's doing with their paid models. But I think if I contrast maybe the the different approaches to social media they've taken, I think you know Twitter still has a lot of social problems they've helped create as well. But I've liked that there's they seem to be trying different revenue models. So the paid versions that you don't have promoted tweets or the ability to you know delete or edit tweets. Like I respect that they are really productizing what they have to try to get out away from what they've been in the past. Because if you look at Facebook, I truly don't know how they get out of what they've created. They're way too big at this point to just say, we're going to change our business model. And I truly believe that's the only way out of where they sit today. But that also provides a good backdrop for, I think, what we're talking about today, which is when there's a big large Goliath or monopoly, we all get afraid that it's going to take over our lives. But typically what happens uh, in those processes is upstarts come out and challenge the status quo. And I think that's what's exciting about this episode is we get to talk about this trend of anti-social media that is actually pushing against that. Right. So rant part of the episode is over. We're moving into the next part because we know a lot of people agree with us. So this dissatisfaction, like Christian's talking about, is actually encouraging this new wave of social media products or anti-social media products. 
And that's not to say that these products don't promote communication and socializing. Anti-social media products are not inherently anti-social, but they're kind of against what social media as we know it stands for today. And they're trying to eliminate the challenges we just described. And I think they do that through product design and in a lot of ways through product brand. So I'm, of course, going to represent the product design side. And when I think about it from uh, a product design perspective, anti-social media apps tend to have a few things in common. Uh, A lot of social media today is driven by visuals and a dearth of content, posts, photos, profile pictures, ads, videos, things like that. Anti-social media apps may not eliminate these mediums altogether, but they're consolidating how much and what kinds of content users encounter. Some apps might propose limiting or nixing ads altogether, hopefully. By the way, I think that's like the key out of this. If you can find ways to do this without ads, you're on the right path. And in one case we'll talk about later, there are no user profile pictures. This is meant to discourage bias and focus on what people have to say rather than how they look. And by the way, I've read some people talk about doing that on LinkedIn to remove bias, removing profile photos. So yeah, interesting. Again, something that is not the fault of, I think, you know, social media, but it's like playing to some of the worst parts of human nature. So one of the things from from a design perspective, I I guess one thing I would offer that anti-social media apps are starting to do and could should continue doing is really be a lot more focused in the way they're offering. I think when you look at the explosion of social media, it's been for everybody everywhere. I mean, you have what, a billion or a few billion people on Facebook. And so all of these things are geared towards everybody. And when that happens, I truly think it becomes, it's almost like the Wild West in the 1800s in the US. Like all of this open land was lawless because people were just roaming free and they had no guidelines. And it was just felt like an infinite expanse of land. That's kind of how social media feels like today. The way that I think that you start to foster better engagement is a little bit better focus in like actually maybe fostering, you know, closer knit communities. I was listening to this podcast called Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and he was interviewing Bill Gurley and Philip Rosedale. Um, Philip Rosedale, you know, founded Second Life, which was like the original attempt at the metaverse. And they were talking about how a lot of these apps like Roblox and, and Minecraft really succeeded where Second Life didn't because they were focusing on kids and they were focusing on ease of use. And he was talking about how even though Second Life is still around today and is generally successful, it never became the metaverse as we're talking about it today because it wasn't designed as easy to use. So you can see a kid in Roblox building something after using it for one week that adults would take months to learn how to do in Second Life, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So I think from a design perspective, you can apply that same thinking to the anti-social media apps where you're just making everything a little bit more constrained about what you can do, about what types of content you post, a little bit more clear with intent, like what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. And I think those restrictions will actually encourage more safer spaces for, for people to, to interact with. But the how that you do that, I mean, that's that's a little tough. You can't really necessarily design that in a user interface. But I think a lot of it, too, starts with brand, which I think I would love to hear your perspective on. Yeah, so I'll take the brand side. And I mean, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, what Facebook did with rebranding to Meta didn't really help them because I think they were already too far down that rabbit hole. But there are things that a brand can do, and we've talked about this in other episodes as well, to make it 
more trustworthy, to make themselves more trustworthy. And I think that's what people are looking for in response to big social media, I guess, as we'll call it, in these anti-social media apps. So a lot of these apps now, the the anti-social media apps that are coming out, are making big brand promises about privacy, about eliminating trolls, about creating spaces where people can be their authentic selves. These are big promises. You need to follow up on that with product, obviously, but it is at least somewhere counter to big social media to start with brand. A lot of these cases we see, um, which is actually, this is a trend that we've been seeing in SaaS overall, but specifically in anti-social media companies. One trend is posting a manifesto on their homepage or on their about page and really leaning into that as messaging. These anti-social media platforms are using it to walk through some of the dissatisfaction that users might have felt on these traditional social media products. So it's a more direct way of messaging because it is actually calling out, okay, we understand you and we know you and we know you're feeling all of these things. Whereas traditional messaging uses that as kind of, they they more just hint at it rather than say it explicitly in a manifesto. Well, I was going to ask before you get into DM, what what do you think, like, I, I think that's great to bring the manifesto, but like, what in your mind is different between a manifesto and what you would consider traditional like marketing copy that you'd create on a website? Traditionally, a manifesto, a brand manifesto, if a company has it, has been internal. And so they say everything that they believe to be true. And a lot of times they have felt that this is a little bit too rough or too raw to share externally with customers. And so that they needed some sort of a messaging polish on it. And they needed to say it a slightly different way to appeal to this audience or that audience. And now it's kind of like, okay, we're going to show you all our cards because we know you don't trust anyone now. We're going to be completely honest with you. We're going to show you what we're showing our own people. This is what we believe. And I think now that we're at this point of like, nobody trusts anything online anymore. It's, uh, it's kind of like a last ditch effort to get people to trust. Like I'm for real. Like I know you don't trust, but like I'm going to write it in this way. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. Almost like exposing somebody to the back kitchen in a restaurant to let you know like how you're making it. So it creates that authenticity. Yeah, that makes sense. So Diem, which we're going to explain a little bit more later on, has one great example of what these promises look like. So in Diem's case, they decided to deliver their message in a letter, which I want to read a bit from to help you visualize what anti-social media is trying to achieve. They say, we exist because the majority of information for women and non-binary people on the internet today comes from people in the business of promoting items for profit, ranking for search results, and producing hot takes for shock value. Searching for answers online is lonely, frustrating, and full of trolls. Trustworthy subject matter experts are few and far between. It often feels like there's nowhere to go. None of this reflects the real behavior we know exists among women and non-binary folks in the real world, which is to share their lived experiences with each other behind closed doors in a helpful, constructive way. So they do some context setting, and then they offer this brand promise. All of the doors are wide open in DM. That kind of gets back to that, you know, whole behind the scenes here. We're going to open everything up and show you. Wisdom is like currency here. We think of every person's unique experience as a well of knowledge that someone else can learn from. Well, I mean, I think you captured the manifesto. We've talked about this manifesto, I don't know, maybe for maybe two years. I feel like one of the first times I noticed it was on Leon, an app that we had on the show about a year and a half ago, uh, maybe two years ago. And, and your, 
I love that you're bringing it up here because this this feels I think you kind of kind of says exactly how you described it. I feel connected to the person behind this. I am not a a, a woman or non-binary, but I completely understand where this is coming from. So it almost like builds an empathy. It's funny to me too, like it kind of lets me know who it's for and maybe who it's not for. And they are completely owning that. So for me as a, as a white, you know, hetero male, it's fine that it's not for me. And I think that's what is exciting from a meta perspective on social media, anti-social media, that this is very specific and targeted. And because it is, it's very specific to their needs. I also love that this is like so simple, but how it says it doesn't reflect the real behavior we know exists. And that's so true how a lot of social media has created such a misconception about actual life. Like even the things and the trolls that are on there are often not like that in real life. It's such a weird dysmorphic, reality dysmorphic thing. So I love that they hit on that. Yeah, because people online, I mean, this has been true since the internet has existed, that people online, because they can be anonymous or because they can be removed with from what they're interacting with and who they're interacting with, they tend to act in ways that they might typically not in person and sometimes in the worst ways. So what I what I also feel like this does is it does start, I imagine for people that do resonate starts to feel like there's something for them. And I think this is something that you observe in the real world, like you'll see communities that are targeted community centers or like an Elks Lodge or like a VA you know, hospital. Like there's a bunch of things in the real world that are for particular groups of people. And I think in general, we don't have problems with a lot of these exclusionary things. Now we do when it is, you know, holding back other people, but not when it's like really fostering community that's healthy. And so I feel like looking at a manifesto like that, it does start to give me images of some of these more healthy, like real world communities that that exist. And but I think, you know, getting to the product perspective, I think, all right, if you're going to make this promise, it's really incumbent on you to actually make that happen, to keep the trolls out to like really foster those sorts of things. Right? They're like really niche clubs, not necessarily exclusive, but you're not going to join it if you're not interested in it, or if the topic or the criteria doesn't apply to you. Exactly. I like that. I mean, it's like, you're not going to troll a book club in real life because you didn't read the book. So why would you go to it? So how can they replicate that? Okay. So, well, you've already started, Megan. Let's let's wrap this up with our third point. Like We started with why there's a dissatisfaction with social media, the counter movement of anti-social media. Now let's get to some examples. I mean, this is for the better product listeners out there who listen to this to celebrate great products. So of course... After all this, bearing with us through our rants, we did find a few examples of anti-social media apps that are worth watching this year. The first one that's on our mind is one we already talked a bit about, Diem. And to make sure you know, it's sort of like Carpe Diem, D-I-E-M. It's a really interesting product in beta right now, and it's being pitched as a, quote, social universe for women and non-binary people. And it's taking several bold steps on its product design to get there. As one example, there's no profile pictures on the app. So users can focus more on what a person has to say rather than what they look like. And I mentioned that earlier about the LinkedIn aspect, but I think that that's really interesting to do as well here. So when anyone signs up for a profile, they aren't admitted until they write their first post. So I think that that's important from a design perspective. You can't get rid of one thing without you know changing another thing. So they've gotten rid of this sort of focus on the profile photo, but now they're forcing you to write their first post 
So there is still this concept of making a first impression or conveying who you are. It's just sort of giving you a way to do it that's maybe not as superficial as just uh, looking at someone's headshot. So anyway, I, I love that. I love that that start for DM. Right. And the post functionality is because conversations are at the core of DM. And I think it creates this atmosphere where everybody, if you want to be in this space, you are going to need to participate. You're going to bring your own original thoughts. You're not just going to come in here, see what everybody else is saying, and then troll everything they say. And they're also trying to elevate these conversations by bringing in industry experts to be dedicated hosts of spaces and of conversations in order to make this uh, just a little bit more intellectual and a little bit more worth engaging in. Another product we're looking at here is GLASP. That's G-L-A-S-P. We came across GLASP thanks to all of you in the Better Product community when one of our community managers actually met a founding product manager there. So GLASP is in beta and it's pitched as a place for learning. GLASP proposes doing this through a process of collecting insights that you find online. So you can share, you can mark these insights, you can share them with your followers, and you can do this all with the help of a browser plugin. So it doesn't matter what website you're on, you can pull anything you find into GLASP. It's kind of like a note-taking app, almost like an Evernote, where you highlight and annotate material as you encounter it online. But then rather than keep that information for yourself, it feeds into a profile that other people can see. And then they get pretty philosophical with their brand as well. GLASP's mission and brand promise to users is all about leaving your digital legacy for humanity, which you might think, I feel like my mom has told me this every time I post something on social media. She's like, you're leaving something for people to see. Like, that's going to be out there. That's, you know, nature of the internet is whatever you put out there is going to be your legacy. But it sounds like they're trying to up-level it a little bit and make it a little bit more thoughtful. That's interesting. I was reading this friend of a friend on Twitter was posting how she like apologized for stuff that she posted over the past few years. It's probably more meant for her network, but she, it was interesting. Yeah, there was a few tweets in the thread where she was sort of reflecting on like I was younger then and like really short sighted. And I was like, that's really interesting to see it. And it's totally true because like you have this legacy left behind that you may not really care to leave when you're like in your 20s or maybe even your 30s. But I love that that digital legacy for humanity. So that's a wrap on today's conversation, but certainly not the last time we ever have to talk about something like this. But we are going to stop talking in the microphone, though. And next, you're going to hear from Emma Bates, who's one of the co-founders of DM, about what her product is doing to create a social media community for women and non-binary people. She'll explain more about what's on the horizon for DM's social universe. And so if we've gotten you sort of interested today in that I highly recommend listening to her because she's fascinating and has a really interesting take on on this space. Yep. So she'll be coming up in part two. And in the meantime, we'd also love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Do you think social media as we know it is on the decline? Do you agree with our observations about anti-social media? Do you know of any other products in this anti-social media space that we may not have heard of? We'd love to hear about them. So write or record your thoughts in a voice memo and send them over to us via email. You might just be featured on our next episode.